Hello, readers. Mikel Jolet is a writer, a musician who fronts the alt-rock band Airborne Toxic Event, and a published author. The new book is Hollywood Park, a memoir. Mikel, thank you for the time. What was your goal in writing Hollywood Park? Well, I think when I first started writing, my dad had died, and I was trying to understand why it hit me so hard. I guess I knew that everyone knows grief is sad, but... I didn't expect for it to be so confusing. I don't know if you've ever lost someone in your life that you really love, and it never happened to me before to that level. I'd lost some people I love a lot, but someone who's just so integral to my life in that way, and I just was baffled. It was just like the laws of physics no longer applied. That's how it felt. I remember thinking, like, what's next, gravity? Like, what is going on here? And I was just so sad and so broken up by it. So I decided I was going to write a book about it, and I sat down to write, figuring it would take me six months. And three years later, (laughs) uh, at Hollywood Park. Well, there are so many different layers to this book, and it really starts off with the first chapter, where you describe this harrowing tale of you and your brother Tony escaping with your mom from a cult compound where you lived for the first five years of your life. Some people may recognize the cult by the name Synanon. What do you remember from that particular night? Well, it was early in the morning, and not much. There's a reason why there's only one scene in Synanon. It's because I was so young when it all happened. I just remember my brother in the doorway. I remember being woken up. And I remember, you know, going outside. And she was all stressed out. And you got to understand that we didn't know our parents in Synanon. We were told everyone was our parents. So I knew she was this thing called mom. Like, we knew that much. But the word didn't have any particular meaning to me. It was just like, okay, here's this woman that comes and visits every couple of weeks because we were essentially in an orphanage inside the cult. She lived 500 miles away. We'd see her every few weeks. and you know, We knew her as this woman that came by and was very sad. Um, but we didn't know, you know, not in the way that you might think of a mom. We have this collective understanding of what a mom is. So she came and she was like, we got to go. It's not safe. We gathered our things very quickly. And I remember my brother really didn't want to leave and he was kind of mad about it and I didn't know how to feel about it. I was just sort of confused. And so we left and we went out and then my grandfather was there. And it was weird because it was like we weren't used to seeing men. So many of the people in the what they called the school, which was the orphanage, that took care of us were just women. So he was there and we, um, we got in the car and we drove away. After a brief stay with Grandpa Frank and his wife, your grandparents in San Jose, your mom moved you all to an apartment in Oakland and then a house in Berkeley Along the way, another former Colt Compound resident started living with your family, a nice guy by the name of Phil. But something caused Phil to disappear from your family and for y'all to eventually flee to Salem, Oregon. What happened? So at the time we were living, yeah, on Spalding Avenue in Berkeley, and we had this old house. It seemed big to us because <laughs> we were used to sleeping on cots and whatnot. And you got to understand, we'd never been in the world outside of the cult before. So not only was the idea of a mother foreign to us, the idea of family was foreign to us. We didn't know what a restaurant was. I don't think I'd ever been in a car. I think I'd been in something that they called the, I think they called them the jalopies, which are sort of like these people mover military type vehicles. But I'd never just been in a car. So I remember, you know, we went to Oscar's Burgers, which was like this burger joint across the street from us. And it was like amazing, like, oh, my God. Hamburgers will live like kings. We just didn't understand. People bring you food and you can eat it. And what did we know from any of that? So we weren't allowed to play outside because the refrain we always heard was that the bad men were going to come and get us. 
you know, the bad men are going to come, the bad men are... And now I understand that the leader of the cult had essentially this goon squad that was going around intimidating people or, in one case, trying to murder people. And it was scary. I didn't know this at the time. They'd stockpiled a thousand rifles or something, and there was these tapes of the leader screaming about wanting an ear in a jar and people's legs broken and not messing with this old bullshit posture. Like, that was kind of his rant. So we were always told we weren't allowed outside because the bad men were going to come steal us back because we weren't her kids. We were the community's kids. That was the fear. So we always had to play inside, and we had this playroom. And it's really sad just being in there all the time. We could hear the kids on the street, but we couldn't go out. And we sort of knew the games that they would play. We'd hear them go by from time to time. And we were just kind of locked in this room hiding out. And then I think because my brother was such a pain in the butt about it, I think we were just allowed out a couple of times. And one of the times we were allowed out, Phil, who was our roommate, was a really nice man. And I don't know if I'd say he's a father figure, but he was definitely like just a warm presence in our lives. He was just a friend of my mom's, but he was living with us and good guy. And he came home and he had an old VW bus like any good hippie. And he got out. He says he was holding groceries. I don't remember him holding groceries, but that's the kind of thing. It's been four years, you know. <laughs> but I do remember the men. They had these flesh-colored kind of masks. I guess there was, as a kid, I didn't quite understand it, but now I think it's like, you know, like bank robbers wear like nylon over their heads. It's like that kind of thing. And I didn't know what to think of it. They walked up behind him, and they had these batons, and they started wailing on him. You know, he fell over on the ground, and they beat him unconscious while he screamed. And our eyes locked for a minute. And he just looked terrified and sad. And it all happened so quickly. I think it was a really pivotal moment for a lot of reasons. But at the time, I just, it was just like I, I didn't know what to think of it, except for I know I was scared. And I was hiding, and I hid. I hid behind the, whatever, the column on the porch. And my brother was watching. All the kids from the street were watching from across the street. Eventually, the neighbor lady came out and started screaming and telling him to leave and whatnot. And then they eventually left, and ambulance came for Phil. And he spent a month in the hospital in a coma. I think it really scared my mom. And we sort of just disappeared off the radar and went up to Oregon. I guess she found a job at the state mental hospital in Oregon. And so we moved to Salem, Oregon without telling a soul. Just like one day, just whew. That's an incredibly traumatic event for a kid to have to witness. How did your mom help you out through that? Um, she didn't. So it's hard to talk about these things because it's like I really try to unpack this in the book. It's part of the point of the book is to write about buried history. I don't think she did help us deal with that. And that was one of the difficult things to, you know, to face as I got older we were sort of treated as accessories. No one explained to us what was going on. We were just kind of, I don't know, along for the ride. And we heard a lot about the things our parents went through, you know, the breakup of the marriages, which they broke up marriages. They forced men to have vasectomies and forced women to have abortions, which are horrible things. I mean, don't get me wrong. And there was a lot of violence. But nobody stopped to say, like, how do you feel? How did this happen? And it didn't even occur to me that I had a voice at the time I think that happens a lot with kids in traumatic situations. You don't know. It's like if you're born poor, you don't know you're born poor. You're just poor. Everyone's poor. So you don't know what being poor means or whatever. And we were poor too. We were on you know, government assistance and went to the food bank for food and eventually ended up raising rabbits and stuff for meat. And it was just, I think as I got older, I started to unpack these things. So when I went back to write the book, so much of this book is just trying to give a voice to that kid. I just wanted that kid to 
have a right to have some feelings about what was happening and around that event, you know, it was just a lot of sadness and fear. You know, it was scary. And we never talked about it. There was never a moment where like, how was that for you? Are you okay? We never saw a shrink or anything. And I was often told that it didn't happen. I didn't witness it at all. That I was somewhere else at the time and my brother was somewhere else at the time, which was really confusing thing to happen because I was here on the one hand having nightmares and having very um, visceral memories of these things. And then at the other hand being told by my mother, you know, this never happened. You weren't there. You weren't there. How would you know? You weren't even there. And so it sort of called into question my own thoughts and my own sort of feelings about it. And it's something I get into, you know, later in the book as well. No doubt. You mentioned giving childhood you a voice. It's interesting because in reading this book, it felt like you changed how you were technically writing from when you were a kid through adolescence and into adulthood. Like the writing became much more technically sound as you matured throughout life. Whereas much of what you wrote as a kid struck me as like a longer version of Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. A lot of run-on <laughs> sentences that mimics a child's active mind and imagination. It tightened up by adulthood. Am I imagining things or was that intended by you? No, very much so. The book is written from four distinct perspectives. Each of them has its own grammatical structure, its own sentence structure. You know, I was really trying to capture the interior world of a child that I wanted the narrator to particularly when young, there's a lot of confusion. I think the first few chapters of the book, there's a lot of confusion. I think as a reader, even you're like, what, what's going on here? And that's because I, I had a lot of confusion around these events and what I was being told and what was actually happening. And there was things that happened in the book. At one point, I think I have on page four, my mom turns into a bird and flies away. On page 200, we tunnel a thousand feet beneath a racetrack and all hang out in a bright, like there's magical realism and there's switching of perspectives and there's all these sort of literary things going on. And it's because I feel like that's how we organize our identities and our lives, and particularly as children. Like at six years old, I wasn't sure I couldn't fly. I had a suspicion I maybe could. I wasn't sure if I could talk to animals. I didn't know. And particularly, I think, if you come from a traumatic background as a child, you learn to um, believe the lies that you're told, to repeat the lies that you're told. And then as you get older, you slowly unpack them. You start to learn what's real about the world. And I think adults forget how complex the emotions and imaginations of children are. And so when I was writing the book, I was trying to just bring it to life. What's it like to be five years old going through this and believing certain things that are clearly not true and then sort of having to slowly learn what was real and what wasn't? Because then this process of unpacking the imagination and perspective and events, I thought if I just showed that unfolding over childhood and then eventually in adulthood that that would capture the reality of the journey as it actually felt which was like this puzzle that i had to solve over a lifetime as somebody who's a big fan of visual writing styles i thought you absolutely nailed it and it's one of the many reasons why this is such a fantastic read mikhail oh thank you so much i worked very hard at it <laughs> absolutely well it's clear that you did the final product i think shows as much now you mentioned at the start of this conversation the special relationship you had with your dad from the moment your family escaped Sinanon, your mom told you that your dad was a pretty rotten dude, a former drug addict and ex-con who left your family in the dust to start a new family in Southern California. Even still, you always fostered this deep admiration for your dad. Why were those positive feelings towards him validated the morning of your sixth birthday? All right, so what you got to understand about my dad, too, is that there was this folklore around him. My dad was essentially a professional criminal in his young life and then an addict. 
He'd been in and out of prison. He'd done all kinds of crazy stuff. He had all these stories. And he got clean, by the way. So this was before we were born. We never witnessed it. So it was always like this mythology. And we used to trade these stories. And to us, he was like Steve McQueen meets Clint Eastwood meets Cool Hand Luke. He was just the coolest dude. <laughs> like in our minds, we had this picture. And some of it was because we didn't know any men. It was all women that took care of us in the orphanage. And, and then when we left to live with our mom, we lived with a single mother. And you know, for the sons of single mothers, men are like these magical beasts, these faraway creatures that you don't really know. And you sort of realize that you're going to become a man someday. And I think we sort of envied some of our peers whose fathers taught them to be stoic, taught them how to hold back. We didn't know how to hold back. We didn't know how to act around other boys that had dads around, really. We didn't get the jokes all the time. And there was this feeling like we just want to be out among the men. And I think part of it also was because a lot of what happened to us when we left Sinanon and in Sinanon was traumatic. So our dad was like this mythical figure in our minds. He had escaped a Mexican prison. And that's our true story. He escaped a Mexican prison that he'd been sentenced to for five years. He once slid his motorcycle at 60 miles an hour straight across the border, fell on its side, and he went straight across the U.S.-Mexico border. He carried a sawed-off shotgun. You know, he would talk back to the guards at Chino, you know, at Chino prison where he was in jail. And, and then he got clean. He was a heroin addict when he got out of jail, went to Sinanon, got clean. Then he got a bunch of other people clean. And he'd been like one of these guys that seen everything. It was just funny and told stories about it, was never ashamed about any of this stuff. So this is who he was. And so on my sixth birthday, he came to visit me in Oregon. And like, it was just like walking through Yankee Stadium with Babe Ruth. Like, here's this father here's this man it was like oh my god this is great this is he can throw a baseball from left field to home plate i can barely get from second to third and he can swear you know like am i allowed to swear on this on this show can i swear you are yes they would just roll off the tongue he'd be like that fucking shit bird that asshole reagan you know the fucking those goddamn dodgers and we'd see be like oh that asshole reagan those goddamn dodgers. we would just kind of repeat it under us that fucking carburetor I remember him, just he said like over dinner that night, he's like, that fucking carburetor on that, he had an old truck. He's like, that fucking carburetor's been busting up. And I remember just being like, that fucking carburetor. I'd like say it under my breath, like that's a great sentence. What a great, and I'd repeat it to my friends. I'd be like, you know, Joey, the problem with your skateboard is that fucking carburetor. <laughs> you know, listen, mom, the reason the sink doesn't work is that fucking carburetor. It was just like, we, we just, it was like, man, how do you be like these magical creatures, these beasts called men? And I don't know why we're so drawn as boys to emulate, you know, the men in our lives, but we are. Um, and it was such a powerful feeling. And then he also just turned out to be great. He was so wise and kind and funny and warm and interested in us and affectionate with us. This big masculine dude who liked old motorcycles and old trucks and football and stuff who just wanted to hug us and kiss us and take us places and hang out with us. And it was just great. And we weren't used to that level of warmth and some of the real basic things like empathy. We just weren't used to that. And so here we got it in the form of the folklore dad guy come to life. So it was just like this revelation. And when he left, he told us we were coming to L.A. to visit him for the whole summer. And we were like, this is going to be awesome. He's like, I'm going to take you to Hollywood Park because he loved the handicap. And he's like, there's nothing like being out with the sun on your face at the races, betting on the ponies. And I'm going to take you with me. I'll show you. And then he left. And so it was just like when he left, I spent all the weeks and months after that just going over it in my mind again and again. You got to understand how important a father is to a young child like this to me at that age. I didn't know any man. I hardly knew what a family was. And here was this guy and he loved me and he was funny and he was great. And he was also the Steve McQueen dude. And where was he in my head? He was always at Hollywood Park. 
that's where he was when I thought about him. It's like, oh, where's dad right now? He's, he's sitting in the sun, betting on the races. He's out with the men. You know, he used to say, it doesn't make sense to go unless you can come home owning the place. He always wanted to make these big bets. And that's where he was in my head, just at the racetrack. So in my mind, it was sort of like, that's where the men are. That's where the fun is. That's where family is. It's at the racetrack. Your dad wasn't bullshitting you guys. You and Tony began spending summers with your dad in L.A. Prior to that very first trip, you learned that he shacked up with a woman that you actually knew from the cult. Her name was Bonnie. Who was Bonnie? Bonnie was like a mom to me from day one. So, I, you know, we were in the orphanage and some of the caretakers were not good people. There was a lot of abuse in Synanon, but some of them were wonderful and she was wonderful. She was just warm and she was kind to me and she would come see me on days off and she would take walks with me and we just had a special kinship. And after we left, I didn't see her and I sort of missed her and just didn't really know what to make of any of that. And then eventually, yeah, we went to visit my dad and it turns out she and my dad had gotten together. It had nothing to do with me. It just was like one of these flukes of convergence. My dad showed up at her door. <laughs> I think he remembered her from the call because they all knew each other. You know, they lived together for 10 years. So he just showed up one day and she said he never left. And then they were a couple and they stayed together the rest of their lives, the rest of his life. Like they just, you know, were always together. And so it was great. I show up and here's my dad and then here's... Bonnie, who was like a mom, and she was so warm and loving, and we went to go visit for the summer, and it took us body surfing at the beach, and took us to Disneyland, and took us to play baseball, and he, he worked six days a week, so it was always like, he'd put us in like day camp, and he'd pick us up at six o'clock and take us straight to the beach to go body surfing, and we'd stay there till the sun went down, and on the way home, we'd stop and get ice cream, and stay up watching George Carlin, and he would always swear in front of us. He'd be sitting there with a beer. And he started had a love-hate relationship with the Dodgers. He'd be like, Dodger blew my ass. You know, but he'd have his arm around us and we're all just sitting there and we'd go, Dodger blew my ass. Like, you know, it was just, um, it was great. And there was food and there was, like, we didn't have much food in Oregon. And it was like, there's just this happy place where we felt loved, cared for. It was our first experience with being part of this thing called a family that we never had. Was that first summer in Southern California the first time in your life that you actually felt like a kid too? I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, look, I don't think I knew that at the time, but yeah, looking back at it now, I'd say that's probably right. Yeah. First time when you feel like you're not so stressed out about the things happening around you and the craziness and you're just able to kind of, you know, have the quiet, happy thoughts of children who have their needs met and are just kind of going about their day, you know. Near the end of that first summer stay, your dad finally did take you to Hollywood Park, the horse racing track that this book is named after, of course. What was that first day at the track like, and did you win any bets? <laughs> I don't remember if I won that day or not. The thing I remember really clearly was he saying he's going to stake me, <laughs> and he would be like, all right, you can make any $2 bet you want. And so on each race, I could make a little $2 bet and he'd let me like choose which horses and whatever. And he'd said like, if you lose, you don't have to pay it. But if you win, we split it. But then of course we never split it. He just let me keep it if I wanted. Yeah, we just sat up in the stands and we ate our food, which is usually like, you know, an ice cream sandwich or malted ice cream, I think is what he liked. And took in the races, took in the day. And he had all his shady friends there, you know, they'd be like, hey, Jimmy, you going to teach the boys the family business? You know, because they knew him because he was always there. And he was just so proud. He'd be like, these are my boys. And we were just so proud to be there with him. And this was all like magic to us. We were in a room, you know, excuse me, for a long time. We were just like in a room and we didn't know about any of this. And we didn't know what it was to feel this way or to be out having these experiences. So it was so big to us at that age. 
you know, that's where I learned fractions. <laughs> you know, I learned fractions at a racetrack. That's where he taught me what fractions were because I understood how bets were paid out. And I was like eight years old, like, oh, that's how fractions work. Okay, I got it, you know. <laughs> it was great. It was great. What was your mom's response when you and Tony got back to Salem from that first summer in California? I think she was, um, I think she was jealous, <laughs> honestly, that we had such a good time there. And I think she, um, you know, it's funny because it's like, it's hard to talk publicly about my mom because there is this sort of part of me that I always feels sort of like I have to guard her, like the way you see a boxer like has a broken rib and they drop their elbow and they guard the rib. It's kind of like that. Like within the context of the story, there's a lot of nuance and complexity to what happened. And so I would say that just sort of as a grand mall sort of thing, I don't think that she was the mother she would like to have been. I think if she knew then what she knew now, she might have made some different choices. And this is me trying my hardest to, you know, Mary Carr is this thing about memoir writing where she says, with difficult relationships, you have to try to see them as God sees them. You have to try to write about them with great love, even when there was, if they caused you great pain. And I think in the case of my mom, there was a lot of pain. And I think she was jealous. And I think she thought we got fat. And she continued to sort of say bad things about my dad, which we just didn't believe at that point, which was kind of like a crack in the armor too, because we were being told one thing. And then there was this guy that we met that was wonderful. Yeah, it's one thing to be told your version of events on a singular incident are incorrect, but it's a totally different thing for somebody that you have that much admiration for, like your dad, for him to be slighted. You can just be like, look, I may value your opinion in other ways, but on this particular thing, I know you're flat out wrong. Or maybe it's more like you start to think maybe there's a problem with the source here, like, you know, where I wouldn't have thought that before. Now I'm starting to think maybe I'm not being told everything. There was a few different things like that. Maybe I'm not quite being told all the truth there is to tell here. Prior to that first summer in California, your mom started to date a guy named Paul, whom you and Tony meet for the first time when he helps the family move from an apartment to a house in Salem. Gradually, he's around more and more until your mom says he's moving in. Paul was around quite a bit during your childhood. Where does he rank in terms of important adults from that time in your life, and why? Oh, very important. He was a good man. He had this big bushy beard. He was kind of short. He had this black beard. He wore these thick glasses. He looked like a turtle. He always just thought he looked like he was a weird-looking dude. But he was funny, and he was kind of odd, and he was good to us. He took us fishing, and he took us hiking, and he took us to Minto Brown State Park in Salem where we would go for these long walks. And, you know, he'd watch cartoons with us. Most of the adults were always trying to convince us how much smarter they were than us, and he wasn't like that. He just would sit with us and, you know, he'd just kind of hang out and wrestle, throw us around in the air. We'd sit around in our underwear and watch cartoons and chat, and he was just a good guy. He was a good guy and a great drunk. He was like a legendary drunk, and he would go on these benders where he'd disappear for like a month at a time, where he would just be drinking in his truck and drinking in the woods, and he'd show up on cold winter mornings, and all we had was a wood-burning stove, and so you had to chop the wood if you wanted heat in the house, and so he'd come and he'd chop the wood for us, and he'd always have a little puke on him and smell like beer. And My mom wouldn't let him be in the house when he was drinking, so he'd go and have these benders instead. And it kind of felt like we weren't sure he was going to beat it, you know? We weren't sure if he was going to really get get out of it. And he set up this whole operation where we raised rabbits. We were on government assistance and didn't have a ton of money. And so we needed more money for, I guess, meat or whatever. So 
the thought was that we would raise rabbits. And so we started raising and slaughtering bunnies and we ate rabbit three, four nights a week for years because of it. Yeah, the stories surrounding your brother Tony's standoffs with your mom with regards to eating rabbit stew one more (laughs) night, and also your description of what the stew becomes throughout the course of a week. Oh, man, it was miserable. (laughs) Very entertaining. I'm going to encourage people to buy the book to read about that and more. But speaking on the bunny slaughters, I think it was the second round of those your mom decided that you and your brother needed to actually learn the cycle of life, not just by watching how Paul killed them, but by having to do so yourself. How'd that go? I'd started slaughtering rabbits by the time I was seven or so. That's when Paul taught us how to go through all the different steps that you do to go from being a live animal to being something capable of putting into a stew pot. And at the time, I don't think I thought too much of it, except for I really identified with the bunnies. There was two things going on. There was like, the bunnies were real things that lived in the real world, but they're also symbols. They're symbols in the book, too. They're symbols of the children that we were. We felt sort of caged and left in the dark like they were. And I felt this ache. I didn't want to slaughter them. And I think some of that's just, you're a kid, you don't want to have to kill an animal. But there was something else. I think I discovered that I identified with the bunnies. And what that was was the idea of metaphor taking shape in my seven-year-old brain, as it does with all children. That like, just like the bunnies, we'd been trapped and we'd been eviscerated in some way for someone else's consumption. I don't know if I used those words, but I identified... So I didn't have the words for it, but in that way, the book is always this dialogue. There's me there with the bunnies, thinking about them as metaphors, and then me using them as metaphors in the book. And I feel like that's one of the things that my book tries pretty hard to do, which is to turn this trope of fiction writing on its head. Like, we don't write complex novels because fiction is more complex than we are, or because fiction contains more metaphor than we do in our lives. Metaphor is how we organize our lives. It's the reason why people get tattoos. It's the reason why people identify with sports teams. It's the reason why people have, I don't know, spirit animals. You identify metaphorically with the world. You construct your identity, and particularly for children, that's true. Because you don't really know the boundaries of the adult world. You don't know what's real and what isn't. So what I thought was, all right, if we're going to write complex novels, it's just an attempt to capture this multitude of emotions, the complexity of metaphor. And so I thought, well, why can't a memoir do this? Because the only thing that's different is we can't invent things that happen. Like everything that happens in the book really happened. But I wanted to capture how it felt, what it was really like to be seven years old with a rabbit hanging on a tree. And part of it was to see the bunnies as symbols because that's the actual complexity of how I thought about it, even though I couldn't say it at the time. Yeah, you do a great job of uh, describing the feelings that you're going through and the metaphors and everything else. You'd also do a great job of describing a story that you referenced a couple minutes ago that I'd like you to expand on now, if you don't mind, Mikkel. So the next summer, uh, so I guess the second summer that you went to California to hang out with your dad, y'all road trip to San Diego to hang out with his extended family, uncles and their offspring, grandparents, and even great-grandma. Your uncles told you about how your dad ended up in jail south of the border, which is never a good place to be. What happened and how did he get out? So we used to go to San Diego and we'd see our uncles and our uncles were just these loud, boisterous guys. Two of my uncles had also been in prison. One of my uncles, my Uncle West, didn't. He ended up being a teacher, kind of went a different route. 
but the other two were just loud and brash and funny. And they're all telling stories. And then there's my grandma, my kindly little Italian grandma. And she's like, oh, don't tell them that. And they're like, ah, we're going to, he needs to hear it. It's in his blood. And then we'd start hearing all the stories about the old times. And it would, they'd get up and they'd be laughing so hard. They were red in the face as they told these stories about all the different trouble they got into, all the different things they did. And my grandma would be on the side just like, you boys are always so bad. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's in there cooking like some big Italian feast because that's all she ever did was cook and worry about the family. She was a saint. But so the story was that he was trying to cross the border and he would borrow a friend's car. That's what he says. And he didn't know it had a ton of drugs in it. Uh, that's what he says. And my uncle used to be like, it's the same word in his English and Spanish. It's el bullshito. <laughs> Everyone would laugh, you know, and making fun of him. And my dad would be like, what? No, it's true. Anyway, so he got sentenced to five years in Mexican prison, which is not like prison here. And he just told me it was terrible. Like the bread had bugs baked into it. And they'd give you one of these old sort of ration containers. And it would just be a can opener and a metal plate and a chicken head with like a roll with cockroaches in it. And he was he couldn't eat it. So he would get tacos by giving money to kids. They'd run to the taco stand because he was right on the street, I guess. So anyways, one day... Somebody comes in and opens the door and just walks away. He'd only been there three weeks. He was supposed to be there five years. And he didn't know what the hell was going on. He, he thought he was going to get shot or something. So he walks out of the cell and then someone opens the door and looks away and he walks through that door and goes through like six doors like this and he gets out on the street and he doesn't know what to do. He's just out in the street. So he just walks to the U.S.-Mexico border. He didn't have any money and this was before cell phones. He said he had this old long green sweater on and he borrowed a dime and he called my grandfather, I guess, or my uncle Pete, I think. And apparently they paid off a federal judge in Mexico. They paid him 2,500 bucks to get him out. And he hasn't gone back since. This was like 1959 or something. And he hasn't been back since because it's like, he's still wanted, he says. (laughs) He's like, I'm not crossing that border. I don't blame him. I ain't going back there. Why does the music of Jackson Brown remind you of your old man? Oh, um, you know, he just always played it. Your parents have their favorite songs and they play them for you over and over again. And, you know, you eventually start to appreciate it. You might like it or you just affiliate with them. And he used to just play Running on Empty over and over. He played The Pretender over and over again. So also something about that music. Jackson Brown was the guy. He really captured like the failure of the hippies, right? His whole career is based on like the 60s didn't work out and we failed and now it's the 80s and reagan's president and everything sucks and that's jackson brown (laughs) i mean he's more than that he's a brilliant songwriter and he's one of my idols but you know so he just played it so much so to the point where you know throughout my life i just always when i hear jackson brown i think of my dad you know it's interesting for somebody who has established himself in the world of music you weren't necessarily learning how to make music as a kid but music was an important part of your life Mikel. how so and who are some of your biggest influence in terms of musicians or bands that you were really drawn to yeah so i was in fifth grade and i met this guy named jake who was this new kid in my classroom and he was this big corn-fed boy from nebraska he was fifth grade already six three like 220 or something was a big kid and we were both just these kind of white trash kids in salem oregon walking around in the rain and we went to his house and he went up to his attic and he put on this record and it sounded like the guitars were underwater and the singer had this weird warbly voice and it was the head on the door by the cure and i was like what the hell is this and he's like just listen the singer sings all these happy songs about how sad he is <laughs> that's how he put it and he made me some mixtapes and I started listening to it and there was something magical about it. It was him, it was Morrissey and the Smiths, it was David Bowie and it was like, 
I don't know how to put it except for like nobody was making music about losers like us. So much of the music at the time was about winning. How hard can you party? How tough are you? There was all the gangster rap. Everything was just like, how big are you? How bad are you? How great are you? And here was these songs about feeling messed up, about being sad and about being a loser and in that we'd lost something. And so there was just like this way where it was like it created this private dialogue between like, you know, Morrissey and me or Robert Smith and me where I felt like finally this mirrors more like my experience with the world where I just feel kind of messed up a lot of the time and sort of confused and angry and sad. And Plus, they were just smart and sarcastic, and the clothes were cool, and it was like this entry point into this whole world. Like, you could draw a straight line from that morning, listening to Head in the Door in the attic in that old house in northeast Salem, Oregon, to eventually writing this book, reading Toni Morrison, Philip Roth, whatever, and really coming to appreciate literature like that. It was just like a doorway to an entire world of art and literature and music and storytelling and it changed my life around the same time that you meet your big friend jake the corn-fed boy from nebraska your mom <laughs> lets you know during i think it's your summer stay in california that she is done with paul that he's uh, fallen off the wagon one final time she eventually meets another guy at an al-anon conference by the name of doug brennan your dad had a name for guys like doug brennan what was the label what did it mean and did doug brennan fit that bill <laughs> He was a basic white dude. He would always say, like, you can't trust people who can't dance. <laughs> That's how I always put it. And it's weird because, like, part of this, I think, is sort of racial. Like, we were toe-headed little white boys. We look really Dutch. But my dad's Italian and Sicilian Italian. And he looks, I don't know, Middle Eastern, I think. A lot of people thought he was mixed in jail, I think. And he just never really identified with white dudes that much. You know, I don't think he ever thought of himself as white. And again, that might just be Italians. Italians were kind of like the recent immigrants. I think they occupied in some ways a lot of the place in the American culture that maybe Mexican people do now. It was like, here's the recent immigrant people who are Catholic and have funny food that has a lot of tomatoes and huge families. And there might be some shady shit and then some people trying to get out. And I feel like he didn't trust him. And sometimes I think maybe it's because also he thought of them as these are the guys that put me in jail. This is the man. He didn't trust the man either. He didn't like him either. And so I kind of had this always this mistrust of like, hi, I'm Doug. There was just this thing where I was like, I didn't trust. And now I, you know, I get along fine with people like that. There's plenty of good white people. <laughs> this isn't like, I'm not trying to take down white people. I mean, and again, I'm white, you know, I'm not saying it like that. I'm just saying like, at the time I was like, who the hell is this dude? <laughs> What's this story? You know, he had like a little sedan and he had this. Also, he turned out to be like. A, he turned out to be a real yeah. douchebag, too. Yeah, he didn't turn out to be a good guy. And I think he treated my mom poorly and he treated me poorly and he treated our dog poorly. He kind of treated everyone poorly. And maybe what I was responding to was I just was at that age, a pretty attuned to character. And my bullshit detector was going, no, this dude's no good. And also, it might be just that my memory is colored. Memories like that. It's a fog and it strengthens certain memories and it diminishes others. And that's just the nature of it. And you sort of have to accept that if you're a memoirist and do your best to fight against it and let the reader know just how subjective everything is. And I think that's fair game if you do that. And he ended up leaving us a bunch of times. He would just move his stuff out and move back in so many times that it was disorienting. And then I think that ontological piece of this is that it's like when you see stuff like that as a young kid you sort of realize you don't just identify with the victims of abuse you also so identify with the abusers and there's this part of you that's like oh this gives you power over people 
being elusive gives you power over people. And, you know, as I got older later on in my life, that idea, I think, took maybe hold in some other ways I didn't expect. And also he was physically abusive. I mean, he wasn't like some monstrous dude that like beat me up all the time, but he would intimidate me and stand over me and he'd knock me around and stuff. And the worst part of it was just how much disdain he had for the idea that we relied on him and he just didn't care and treated us like we were disposable. You wrote a line a couple of times in this book that I absolutely loved. To be drunk is to be a hero in a sad story. Is there an origin story to that quote? That's part of my brother's story later on when he's sharing, and I think that's also in the chapter, um, The Way of All Great Drunks, about my uh, first stepdad. So my first stepdad, Paul, the other thing that was sort of difficult about Doug moving in is that Paul had already disappeared. We heard a rumor that he died, but we didn't know. And also, given the kind of relationships that we had in our home in Oregon, again, nobody asked us how we felt about this fact. Nobody said, are you sad? Should there be a funeral? Should we grieve? Should we go look for him? It was just kind of mentioned in passing. And here's this person that lived with us for five years that in many ways was our one sort of soft spot. And suddenly they were um, they were gone. And it was hard. And it was confusing because it was sort of like that thing back in Berkeley with the beating, our roommate Phil, where I, I have this really strong visceral image and memory of this thing that happens and then I'm sort of told that it didn't have anything to do with me. Oh, you didn't really know him that well. That's what my mom would say. Oh, you know him that well. I was like, he lived with us for five years. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a big deal. If he's dead, we should do something. But I didn't have the the wherewithal to say that at the time because what kid has that kind of wherewithal? <laughs> like I just didn't have the self-possession to be able to think that that's something that I could say. Yeah, that's an impossible thing to know as a kid. And you do a great job of reflecting and uh, having a, a very level-headed viewpoint as to why certain things went down and to be able to go back and address those things. I really appreciate it throughout these pages. And for brevity's sake, we're going to fast forward just a little bit. I don't want to simplify any of this because there are great stories told throughout. But eventually, your brother Tony and then you moved down to California to live with your dad on a full-time basis. I believe you start visiting Oregon in the summers at that point. And as somebody who's lived in Oregon before, Oregon is a much better place to be in the summer than in the winter time. Yeah, beautiful in the summer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's like when you actually get some sunny days and it's yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was in uh, Ashland, Oregon. Oh uh, yeah. Shakespeare Fest. Exactly. Shakespeare Festival and the the hiking and the river rafting everything else. Yeah, Rogue River. Yeah, the Deschutes. Yeah, it's gorgeous down there. Cannot be underestimated, but Eventually, you and your brother do start getting into drinking and drugs, and Tony's drug abuse gets so bad that his friends won't hang out with him anymore. He skips three straight months of school, and Bonnie calls the cops after he steals the family car. He returns three days after the cops are called, devastated physically, mentally, and emotionally, and thankfully ready for rehab. And thankfully ready for rehab for the first time. How did seeing your brother so broken affect you? Yeah, I think back then it was scary. I just didn't want to end up like that. It was sort of like a warning because I was kind of the tag along. We had these friends. We all rode dirt bikes. We had these little motorcycles. Like I had a little XR80. He had a YZ125 two-stroke Yamaha. And we all just kind of rode bikes and stole flasks and tried to find whatever weed we could smoke and whatever drugs were around. And then we'd go out wilding into the night. We'd stay out. And I'd be like 12 years old. I'd be out at 2 a.m. pulling Christmas lights off a house or throwing a brick through a window, just like mad on pills and drunk and high and just pissed off at the world. And my brother, he was angry. 
and I was angry too, but for him, he really ran with it. He was like a legend. He was like, at the time, everyone would be like, man, that guy can do more drugs than any three people you know. <laughs> because he didn't care about school. He didn't care. You know, that doesn't age well, but like at 15, whoo. Plus, he was a really good looking dude. And these big blue eyes and the square jaw. He was just like a young Marlon Brando, but just like didn't give a shit about anything. And it was charming. You know, that's the reason why people make decisions like that because it's fun or it can be. So, it eventually went too far and he got kind of strung out and then got sent to rehab and and he got clean for a bit and it scared me and I, I just was like, I can't go down that route. I got to go down a different road. Well, soon after he hits a breaking point, you also receive a wake-up call via a serious dirt bike accident that you do a great job of describing in this book. Following that accident, you do decide to come clean to Bonnie and then your dad about how booze and drugs were affecting your life. So your dad takes you back to the title racetrack, if you will, Hollywood Park. <laughs> Why is that such an important moment in your life? I think because up until that moment, I really worshipped the, I don't know, swashbuckler, thief idea of what manhood was. Because that's who he was to us. Remember, you know, when we were little kids, he was always just this charming pirate. And that, so we sort of thought, we're going to grow up to be these charming pirates drinking and doing drugs and stealing and one foot in front of the law. There's always some doe-eyed woman crying in a room because they just want you to come back. That's who we're going to be like, ah, ha-ha. And to see it play out with my brother in a way that was scary and didn't really work out scared my dad, and he took me to the racetrack. We sat up there, and he just kind of looked out at the oval, and we had our food, and he wasn't one for big talks. You know, a lot of the time, we just went to the track, and we did whatever. We bet our races and sat there and talked about that. But every now and then we'd have these big talks and he said, you don't have to be like me. And he's like, I don't want you to be like me. And I was just really confused. I was like, isn't this what the men do? Aren't we supposed to be like this, dad? And he was like, no, you're a smart kid. You can go do something better. So go do something better. And he told me that he never really knew his dad and that he thought that if he did, maybe things would have turned out differently for him. So it was sort of like this message, like I didn't have what you have, which is me. I'm in your corner. I'm going to support you through everything you need. And so just go do something better with your life. I wish I had done something better with mine. This chat with your dad rejuvenates your focus on academics. That includes a newfound interest in running, which leads to you competing on your high school's track and field team. While going through the rigors of interval training, you get close to what feels like the end of your body's limit. But at that point, you discover an incredible motivator, anger. What's the reoccurring image that fuels this anger for you on the track? This is great. It's like going through the book piece by piece. <laughs> this, is, this is really thorough. Got about two to three hours worth of questions, but I appreciate the hour, man. <laughs> it's a great question. I started running, and I was a distance runner. I cleaned up, by the way. I quit smoking, quit drinking, quit smoking pot. Started to do well in school after the motorcycle accident, and then that big talk with my dad at the park, and you know, also with Bonnie because she was a big person that helped me sort of turn things around. And then I became like a standout student and I became an athlete and I would get on the track and suddenly in the darkest sort of moments of thinking about running where it's like we do these repeats, like these quarter miles, you do four by eight or whatever. You do all these different intervals where you'd run it as hard as you could and then rest and then run as hard as you could and rest. And they were just death. They were so hard. 
And coming around the final turn, I'd always picture this recurring image of this room and the room had three chairs. And there was my brother and my dad. And then there was a third chair. And the third chair was me. And the room was prison. And I just kept thinking, like, this is my destiny. This is my destiny. And so I would just find this anger where I would just be like, no. You know, it was just like really strong defiance. Like, I can't be like you. I won't be like you. And I would push myself to the point where I could basically fall over. I would push so, so hard. As you continue through high school, you start to sense a distance between you and your dad. How were you and him brought back together by way of a bully at the school named Greg Bauer? Yeah, one of the weird things is that once I started trying in school, there was this new dynamic where instead of it being like this mark of like, it was a cool thing to brag to your friends when you're just like a little shithead. Like my dad was in prison. My dad was heroin addict. My dad's got a black belt in karate and carried a sawed-off shotgun for 10 years. Sounds pretty badass. But in the AP college prep SAT taken world, it was like a mark. It felt like, oh, all my friends' dads were engineers and doctors and lawyers and their moms were doctors and lawyers and professionals. And so it was like, okay, what is he and what am I? And it felt like there was this mark, like I was destined for prison. And so I started to feel kind of ashamed of it. And then there was this bully and he's messing with me and he won't leave me alone. And I was still pretty small. I was a pretty small kid for most of my life. I finally had a growth spurt junior year of high school, but before that I was just like a buck 20. And there was this big senior and he just kept messing with me, kept messing with me. So I told my dad about it. I didn't know what to do about it. So I told my dad and and he very sort of like politely kind of took his glasses off. He was reading a racing form and he looked up at me. And he's like, well, you're going to have to kick his ass. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, that's how you deal with bullies. You got to kick the ass. He's like, you can kick his ass. And just because you're smaller doesn't mean shit. You can kick his ass. And so he trained me and we had this old thing this weekend where it was like Karate Kid and he had this pillow and he'd hold it and I would punch the pillow and he taught me how to punch and how to block and the basic dynamics. And he taught me all these shady prison tricks, like ways to quickly gain an advantage in a fight. For example, he would be like, if you have a stack of books, walk up to him and throw the books in the air. And then the instinct is he'll just catch the books. And when he catches the books, you can break his nose. <laughs> I was in 10th grade. And this is what he's, you know, other parents, the engineer parents were like trying to teach gravity. Well, son, let me tell you about 9.8 meters per second per second. You know, here's my dad. All right, here's how you break his fucking nose. Have him grab the books. And when his guard's down, just hit him in the windpipe or try to break his knee. Here's what you do. So he taught me all this stuff. So I went to school the next day and I saw the bully and he started to bully me and do his normal thing. Well, I'm going to kick that little faggot ass the high school kids do. And out of nowhere, I just heard this voice just go, you're not going to do shit. And it almost surprised me. Like, I didn't know what the voice was. And it was the voice of my dad. He had this really loud, intimidating voice. And he used to always tell us how it helped him in prison, that he would just scream if anyone ever messed with him. And this big, intimidating voice. And I felt it come from me out of nowhere. And the bully came up to me, and I just knocked him on his ass, just right in the jaw, just crack. This fight ensued and I got like 10, 12 clean shots. You know, you watch a high school fight and it's usually just like a big mess of dirt and it's a big cloud and nobody really wins and it's kind of messy. This wasn't like that. This was like block, bam, in the nose, block, bam. And people were like, damn, like in the background, you could hear it. And I was screaming the whole time. And it was weird because there was also this other thing where it felt like I was watching it. It wasn't like 
I was participating in it. And I was also realizing that it protected me, this anger of his. And it was a gift that he could give me was I could protect myself in the world because he sort of taught me how to do so. And then it also occurred to me that this was all kind of awful. And if this is what it means to be one of those things called a man, I don't know if it's so great. We're all trying to hide or guard against something kind of weak. And so we overcompensate with this violence and anger and all this stuff. And I thought about all this stuff. But I came home that night and I told him about it. And I was like a hero for like a week at the school. There was this David beats Goliath thing at the school. It was like, I don't know how he did it. I'm not messing with him. That kind of thing. And I told my dad about it, and I told him every little bit of it in the fight and how I blocked and punched and followed his instructions and all that, and he had this smile, but there was something else. It was almost like he was a little sad. And it was hard to explain except for maybe it's because he didn't want me to have to have violence too. Maybe because we both felt this sadness because we, in that moment, realized we were pretty alike. And I think that's a thing with fathers and sons when they see each other as men for the first time and realize how alike they are. And part of you is filled with pride and part of you is filled with the limitations and part of you is filled with tragedy and part of you is filled with kinship and hope. And it's a complex thing because those are all the multitudes that we contain as people and the things we hope for so hard for our children and the things that we hope to make proud so hard in our parents. It's all brought to a head in that one moment when you finally recognize the other person as an adult that isn't so different and therefore is going to face some of the same tragedies that you faced. You do a great job of writing about your time at Stanford, not just in school, but some of the things going on in your life at that time. And folks will just need to buy Hollywood Park to read more about that. After you graduate from college, you work at least a couple of office jobs for eventually getting to cover music for Filter Magazine. Your editor-in-chief and you are pretty much a two-man show in putting each issue together. And this job literally allowed you to sit next to some of your childhood heroes. You got FaceTime with David Bowie and you got to chat with him for a while, and you also got shit-faced with Robert Smith of The Cure. How did he rock your idea of what it means to be normal? It was great because, you know, I worshipped Robert Smith. This was the same guy that I listened to in my headphones that changed my life when I was 11 years old, and here I was now as this adult journalist with this great job. My job was to fly around the world and interview rock stars. It was amazing. I loved it. And I remember we got drunk together, me and Robert Smith, in this hotel across from Central Park, and it was after a listening party for one of the records. I think the one that had that song, End of the World, on it. And we just had this long talk. And I think sometimes you, you really connect with someone, you know, as a journalist. You know that, right? Sometimes you just bro down and you have one of these great talks, you know. And it was one of these great talks, one of the legendary talks. And we went on for three hours. We just drank and talked and drank and talked and drank. He kept telling his publicist to go away. And he was like, we're going to extend. We're going, you know, when we talk. And I started, like I always did in my, because I was a terrible music journalist, I'd like to point out. I was bad at it because all I ever wanted was to, find out the secrets to songwriting that's what i wanted i wanted to become a songwriter and i would want to ask them like how do i do that how did you write this song and so when i started to ask robert smith about that he would just be like just write about how fucked up you feel it was basically it he was just like don't be normal don't worry about being normal you're enough just write about all the things that are happening to you write about the contradictions let the reader into your world into your messed up world and be really specific about it because there's going to be people that felt that way too and they're going to want to hear the story as it was understood by you. It 
clearly had an impact on you because at that point you really grind to write songs and come up with that first song that you feel confident enough to share with the public. Once you had that song written and ready to go, you find a band to start to play with. That's another incredible story. And eventually you and the band do start going through that grind of just trying to make a name for yourself. And while you're starting to find little bits of success here and there, you can't shake this idea of failure. And you eventually bring this up to your dad, once again at Hollywood Park, where you guys have had so many important moments throughout your life. How did you respond when you told him that you couldn't shake this overwhelming fear of failure? Well, I said, Dad, I feel like people are laughing at me. And he was like, let them laugh. That's how every great story begins. Well, that's what makes it a great story is you don't know how it's going to turn out. Life's a gamble, so bet on yourself. And other people thought I was nuts because I was walking away from this. You know, my writing career was doing pretty well at the time. I was doing all kinds of cool stuff. And instead, I decided I wanted to start this rock band. And it was like telling people you're going to join the circus. <laughs> you're going to do what? And I was like, yeah. But you, you what? I still don't understand. I was like, yeah, starting a rock band. That's the thing I'm going to do, seriously. And I'd gotten into Yaddo, a writer's colony in New York, to finish a novel. And I didn't want to go do that. I turned it down and instead started this rock band. He believed in me, though. He was just like, just go do the thing that you want to do, that you feel you're going to do, and let people laugh. It's okay. Reading about your dad's death is literally one of the only times I've ever cried while reading a book in my life. He's just such a sterling example of someone who was not only able to rebound from the depths of hell, but also becoming a great dude in the process, an incredible husband and an amazing dad. What was the last memorable conversation you had with him? Oh, boy, we're just really going for the big guns here, aren't we? (laughs) He'd been sick for a long time, and we were all at Cedar sinai Hospital, which is the hospital where everyone in the family always went. And we knew this was the time. I don't know if you've dealt with people who are terminally ill. and You go to the hospital probably five to ten times before you're really sure, is this the time we're never going to leave? Is this the time we're never going to leave? And so we knew it was the time. We were up on the hospice floor, which isn't the floor you want to be on. You know, I'd been through therapy at this point. I'd spent a lot of time thinking about sort of my childhood and my past and trying to reconstruct the man that I'd sort of invented as a child in order to deal with the world and try to break down some of the layers that I'd created so that I could have real love in my life. And I'd fallen in love, and, you know, our last conversation, I uh, he was laying there in the bed. I went in there, and he had these wires in his neck and tubes in his nose, and... And we talked for a minute, and I said, Dad, i got to tell you something. He said, okay, what's that? And he was really groggy from the morphine, and I said, "Um, I'm going to ask my girlfriend to marry me. Um, Excuse me. And he said, "Um, oh, that's great. He said, are you sure you're ready for that? And I said, I'm ready to try. And he kind of smiled and nodded. And then there was this moment where he looked up, and he said, don't. And I was like confused for a minute because I was like, is he questioning marriage? Is he questioning me? Is it the morphine? What's going on? And then he kind of smiled and he said, don't fuck it up. <laughs> and that was, the, um, that was the last conversation we ever had. And uh, that was kind of how he was. You know, he's on my side, on my team. But also, you know, some people just have your number. Because he knew, he knew I was working on it. And he knew that probably I would choose someone that, the issue would probably be me <laughs> and that I needed to do some work to be able to be the kind of husband I wanted to be, maybe eventually father I wanted to be. 
Well, your dad was and is a beautiful fucking human being, and that's an incredible final moment between the two of you. Yeah, he really was. Thank you. Last question, Mikkel. This doesn't relate to the book necessarily, other than referencing your band by name, but the origin of your band's name is pretty poignant right now. Airborne Toxic Event, which uh, of course comes from the book White Noise by... Don DeLillo, the protagonist in that book, thinks he's going to die because he's been exposed to a giant poisonous cloud that the media has dubbed Airborne Toxic Event. The experience causes him to realize that life is short and to make the most of it. Have you experienced any such epiphanies during this current Airborne Toxic Event that the world is going through? (laughs) We're a little ahead of the curve, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I think the idea was that you're going about your life and you're thinking everything's cool and then suddenly this huge event happens that changes everything that you weren't even thinking about. And part of the story I want to point out is that the government screws it up. Part of the story of the Airborne Talks event is that the government comes in and screws it up and then suddenly you're living in fear. You're living in fear of dying and fear of death and everything changes overnight in ways that you didn't expect. And I thought I'd been through that a few different times in my life, whether it was sinning on or in the case of our escape and all that and the violence that happened in Berkeley and that kind of thing. And I felt that these moments when you really come close to death are the ones that really make you grateful for your life. Like how grateful would you be right now to just be able to go to a restaurant? How grateful would you be to just be able to take your kids to a park? And so the Airborne Toxic event is sort of like the the memory of the life you had. And to some extent, it's the reminder that life is precious, life is short, Big things happen and screw it up. And then also some of it's just what Robert Smith told me. Why be normal? I mean, it's kind of a weird name, but it it allows you to inhabit it. What's a smashing pumpkin? You know, I don't know. The whole idea is the neologistic nature of it is like, well, we want to be our own set of ideas, so let's inhabit these ideas as a band. And in this case, the soundtrack to the book is the new records, also called Hollywood Park. And I think our thought process was, well, a movie has a soundtrack. Why can't a book have a soundtrack? So that's what we did. We made our record, the the soundtrack to this book. And it's very much about these ideas around life and death and love and loss. And I've heard the title track off of the new album and also one other song. Do you mind if we play Hollywood Park on the way out after I bid you adieu? <laughs> that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> Ah, fantastic. He is Mikel Jolet. He is a writer, a musician who fronts the alt-rock band Airborne Toxic Event, and now a published author. The new book is a great one, Hollywood Park, a memoir. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Mikel, thank you so much for the time today, man. Trey, thank you for having me, and thank you for the interview. I really enjoyed this. And as promised, here is the title track off of Hollywood Park, the corresponding album to the book of the same name. Until next time, I'm Trey Elling. This is Books on Pod.
The 